Good evening, church family. Uh, encouraging to hear and see all that God is doing in the life of our church, and we continue to pray that He will continue to use us for His glory. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to First Peter chapter three. Uh, we're going to look at, be looking at one verse, verse fifteen. But before we read, just a word on context. Uh, the second half of First Peter really asks one question: that is. How shall we live as exiles? How shall we live as exiles? Uh, That's an appropriate question, I think, for us especially. Uh, This world is not our home. Yet by God's providence and His design, we are here by His design. and, And therefore, we are here for a purpose. And how would God have us live? Well, Peter gives us some answers to that question. Uh, We must be honorable as we do good deeds. We must be subject to human authorities, our government. We must be subject to our human masters, our employers. Uh, We must be subject to one another in the family as we relate to one another's fathers, husbands, and wives, and parents to their children. And we must be ultimately, as the church united, together in the mind of Christ with brotherly affection. Now, on top of all of this, our passage this evening gives another answer to that question. And the answer it gives is this. In the face of opposition and in the midst of all that we must do, those things listed, we must be ready to speak of our hope and our hope that is in Christ. Let's look at our passage, 1 Peter 3, 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would turn to us and be gracious to us, as is your way with those who love your name And we come before you this evening as those who love you and as those who want to be pleasing in your sight. Would you help us even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A story is told of a Jewish lawyer who had many Christian clients. Unfortunately, many of these clients were shady and proud and greedy and quite a bunch of hypocrites. And one day, this lawyer was invited to a church, and at this church service, many testimonies were shared, perhaps not too unlike the ones we shared even this evening. But finally, after this particular service, someone asked the lawyer what he thought of all these wonderful testimonies of how God had saved people. To this question, this lawyer answered and said, To a lawyer, there's a vast difference between testimony and evidence. I'm sure you would agree there's a vast difference between hearing a witness and seeing evidence. And and the question that that story kind of forces upon us is this. Is there evidence that backs up our testimony? Does the way we live corroborate all that we say? As we bear witness of Christ, 
is the power of Christ's evidence in that life. In fact, perhaps the question could be and should be asked this way, is our Christianity persuasive? As we as Christian, or we as Christians persuasive because our testimony of Jesus is evidence or accompanied with evidence of Christ's power in our lives. Now, now did you notice in our brief passage, do you notice that Christians are meant to be persuasive? Christians are meant to stand out and draw attention. Peter assumes that as we live as exiles in this world, as we seek to do good deeds, as we obey the authorities, as we respect our employers, as we live as husbands and wives in the family, as we serve one another in the local church, Peter assumes that we'll be persuasive. Why? Because others will see us and of their own initiative, they will ask us for the hope that we have. Peter assumes that we as Christians will be persuasive. Now I wonder, when was the last time that actually happened to you? When was the last time that even happened to me? When was the last time someone asked you and us about our hope because they saw in us something different? When was the last time that happened? I'd venture to say, if I consider my own life, if I consider life in the church, we perhaps need to become more persuasive. As we live in our Jerusalem, our our city of Johannesburg, as we go about our day-to-day business in society and in the family and in the church, as we give ourselves to the ministries even of the church, as we live our ordinary life before a watching world, I would argue we perhaps need to become more persuasive. More persuasive so that others would see us and be compelled to ask us about the hope that we have. But how do we become more persuasive? Well, fortunately, our text helps us. It points us in the right direction so that we would be persuasive Christians who, like a flickering light at night, draws attention to itself. It helps us to be persuasive so that we can actually live in such a way that compels people to ask us about our faith and our hope. And as we consider this particular passage, as I try and unfold it, I want to make use, if I can, of Aristotle's trivium of persuasion. Aristotle once said the most effective persuasion has three components, and and those three components, I would suggest to you, are actually evident in our text. And and so let's consider this text in light of those three things. The first thing I want you to see this evening is the ethos of persuasion. The ethos of persuasion, what is meant with the ethos? Well, it speaks to our character. Uh, Aristotle noted that that the most effective means of persuasion is is who we are, 
And we don't really need Aristotle to tell us this. We know instinctively that character matters, don't we? We know to question someone who says one thing but does another. See, who we are, our character as we go about our life in this world will either confirm or contradict all that we say. And so where do we see this ethos in our passage? Look at Peter's imperative. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, as you no doubt know, the heart in the Bible is the center of who you are. It's the control room, as it were, that guides and directs all of life. And so Peter is telling us Christ needs to be at the center of who you are. He is not only the divine Lord of the Old Testament, that's the idea that Peter has you as he quotes Isaiah 8.13, but he's personally and practically the Lord of our hearts, which means that he must be preeminent in our affections, he must govern all our motives, he must influence all our actions, he must shape all of our life. In other words, our character must be shaped by Christ. If we are to be persuasive Christians, we must evidence Christ in our character. Now, now this is vitally important because of a problem that we face, and that's the problem that's been called the credibility gap. Let's be honest, there's often this gap between what we say and how we live, between what we believe and how we behave. We may say we honor Christ in here, but so often out there, he's absent in how we walk and talk and behave. How true is it not that many claim the name of Christian, yet contrary to Christ, they, they don't despise and avoid sin like he did. They claim the name Christian, yet unlike him, they, they do not love those around him. They do not forgive as, as he forgives. See, we may honor Christ in here, but that honor should be evident in, in the way we live. And realize what this gap ultimately communicates is that our message about Jesus is implausible because it proves impractical. Uh, Scott Oliphant hits the nail on the head when he says, if Christianity makes little difference in the way we walk and talk on a day-to-day -day basis, we should not think that there will be any obvious reason for others to want to consider a life in Christ. He says elsewhere, the Christian faith must first demonstrate Christ in our character. Without that, we have nothing of substance to say. And so, if we are to be persuasive, we need to be serious about our character. We need to be serious about the Lordship of Christ. Now, there's a quote that we often hear. Uh, many preachers mention it. I think I've mentioned it. Clinton's had mentioned it at least twice. Uh, Robert Murray McShane once said that my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. Well, if I may take a liberty and twist that a little bit, may I suggest to you that our world's greatest need is our personal holiness, holiness that reflects Christ in our character. And why is that important? Because Christ-likeness is the evidence 
that will make our message of Christ persuasive. Dear friends, woe to us if we claim the name Christ without Christ actually formed in our character. Woe to us. See, the ethos of Christian persuasion is a Christ-honoring, Christ-reflecting character that gives weight to all that we say. And notice, when this ethos becomes true of us, it actually motivates greater boldness for Christ. It, it actually helps us overcome our, our latent fears to, to bear witness to Christ. And now we don't have the time for it this evening, but if you read your passage, this passage in context, you'll see that the honoring Christ as Lord in the heart is actually the antidote and the remedy to fear and anxiety. You see, the greater that Christ becomes in our hearts and our lives, the smaller our fears become, the smaller the obstacles become, especially those fears that, that would want us to keep silent about Christ. I, I wonder, perhaps in fear we've stopped speaking about Christ because we've actually stopped honoring him as Lord in our hearts. See, the point of this passage is that when we honor him, when he's preeminent in our hearts, there won't be this fear to keep silent. In fact, that leads me to the second element of persuasion this evening, and that's the logos of persuasion. The Logos of Persuasion realize it's not enough to merely display Christ-like character. It's not enough to merely display holiness in, in the way you live, in the way you speak. No, if we just displayed Christ-like character, do you know what the world will think? The world will think that the way to be saved, the, the way to be right with God, the, the way to enjoy a blessed and happy life is just to be a good, moral, religious person. Tell me, Christian, is your hope the fact that you are a good, moral, religious person? Is your hope the fact that you have been good and moral up in everything? No. Jesus is our hope. See, in and of ourselves, we were dead in our sins. In and of ourselves, we were destined for, for death because of our sin. Yet it's because of Jesus that we now live. It's because of him that we now have new life. Isn't that what Peter says, 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, we live new, born-again lives because Jesus lives, and not only lives in heaven, but lives in our hearts. Through His Spirit. It's through His Spirit that He wills in us and works within us to transform us into His image. Making us good and moral, but not because of us. It's because of Him. See, He is our hope. And therefore, He needs to be declared. He needs to be proclaimed. 
And so our display of Christ-like character has to be accompanied by a declaration of Christ-centered. That's the logos of persuasion. It's the words we speak, the logos that explains our character. That's what we see in our text. Peter says, always being prepared to make a defense or to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, be ready to speak and explain and defend the hope you have. Be prepared to, to give a reason behind who you are. Be willing to tell others why you do what you do. Why you perform good deeds. Why you send teams to prison. Why you get involved in soup kitchen ministries. Why you get involved in the church. Why? And the answer is our hope, the hope that we have in Christ. But the more difficult question is this, one that we perhaps each of us need to wrestle with, and that is, how ready are you? Tell me, how prepared are you to point people to the hope of Christ? Realize to be prepared, at least two things are necessary. Firstly, you need to know what you believe. You need to know what your hope is. You need to know who Jesus is. You need to know that he's the Messiah. You need to know that he's the Son of God, the, the fully man, fully God-man, the, the one who is eternally the Son. And you need to know what he has done. He's come to live a life of righteousness on the cross. He died for unrighteousness. In his resurrection, he conquered sin, Satan, and death. He lives now, even reigning. You need to know who he is and what he's done. But secondly, you need to know why you believe this. You need to know why this hope matters. Why this hope matters for the world. You must know that without Jesus, there is no salvation. There is no forgiveness for sin. There is no escape from the wrath of God. And you need to know that without Jesus, there is no satisfaction. There is no rest and peace, the rest and peace that we long for. See, for you to be prepared, you need to know what you believe and why. And so the question is, how, how prepared are you? How ready are you to share what you believe and why it matters? I think for some of us here, Perhaps you need to grow in this area. Perhaps you need to grow in understanding your faith better. Perhaps you're a young believer. Perhaps you're a young adult. Perhaps you're just newly converted. You need to spend time to know what you believe, to be assured in the truths of the gospel, whether that is in, in reading books or being discipled, being part of the small groups, but you need to show yourself approved. You need to get to know why you believe what you believe. Why? So that you can be prepared. That you can be prepared to point people to the hope that you have. But I suggest there are others here who are perhaps well grounded in this. Perhaps many of us, many of us have sat under good, sound preaching in the life of this church. And so the question for you isn't, are you prepared? No, the question is, are you willing are you willing to tell others what you believe in? Why? Are you willing to tell others of all the truths that you have soaked in over the years? Are you willing to stick out your neck 
for Christ. Listen to Calvin on this. He says this about Peter. He bids them only to be ready to give an answer, lest by their sloth and the cowardly fear of the flesh, they should expose the doctrine of Christ by being silent to the derision of the ungodly. The meaning then is that we ought to be prompt in avowing our faith so as to set it forth whenever necessary, lest the unbelieving through our silence should condemn the religion we follow. What's Calvin saying? He's saying this, if we are unwilling to give a reason for our hope, then not only are we failing to honor Christ, but, but we're actually guilty of dishonoring him. Dishonoring the one who has placed us where we are, in this place, in this city, for the very purpose of pointing others to him. Now, when I apply this to myself, I cannot but be convicted of my own sin. How often have I not failed uh, to, to, to speak? How often have I not dishonored Christ with silence? And realize we should desire to, to honor Christ with our words, not just because this is something that is, is forced upon us. This is something that should flow naturally out of us. Something that should be a joy and a delight to declare. Uh, consider Acts. We read a few passages from Acts this morning. In Acts 4, we find this wonderful passage where Peter and John are arrested for preaching the gospel. And before they're let go, they're threatened to not speak about the name of Jesus again. Yet listen to how Peter responds. Acts 4, 19 to 20. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. See, Peter not only had this external obligation before God, he had this internal compulsion to speak of Jesus. He couldn't keep quiet. Now, why? Because Peter saw Jesus. He saw Jesus, who he was, the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw that this is the eternally divine Son of God. He saw what Jesus came to do, although he abandoned Jesus, although he left him and sinned and betrayed him, that Jesus forgave him, that Jesus saved him, and not just saved him, declared him his friend. See, Peter had seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and therefore he couldn't keep silent. Now, when we see something beautiful and glorious, we almost instinctively tell others, don't we? And maybe it's a beautiful landscape, artwork, music, whatever it is, beauty and glory evokes a response. And dear friends, shouldn't that be true of us when it comes to the beautiful and glorious Son of God? If we have seen the glory of God in Jesus, in, in who he is, and in what he has done, and why he's done it, then surely we should be compelled to, to tell others. Surely it should flow out of us naturally that, that this God, 
This Savior has loved me. In fact, would you not agree that, that this compulsion to speak would actually make our message more persuasive? I see, persuasive Christians not only display Christ-like character, but they delightfully declare a Christ-centered hope, and that delight actually gives greater persuasion. That when you speak of something with joy and delight, it speaks volumes for the wonder of that object of that delight. And so Christ-like or Christian persuasion has to include Logos words that declare our God's Christ-centered hope. But there's more to persuasion than just that, those two things. Thirdly and finally, I want you to note the pathos of persuasion. Uh, the pathos of persuasion. Pathos uh, traditionally speaks of how we connect to our audience. It has to do with getting people emotionally invested into what you're saying. Yet, yet to do that, you actually be, need to be able to connect with them. And, and so if you want to be persuasive Christians, we need to be able to understand and connect with those we speak to about Jesus. And again, you see this in our text. Always being prepared, he says, to make a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason that, of the hope that is in you. And notice where he says, and do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, those two words, gentleness and respect, speak of showing meekness and, and reverence to others. Towards those who even oppose you and persecute you. See, those words speak of an attitude that relates to others so that you would win them for Christ. And not just win an argument. And now there are a number of passages we could use to tease this out. Uh, Titus 3, 1 and 2, uh, James 3, 17, Colossians 4, 5 and 6. But for the sake of time, let's consider 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 to 26. This is a highly instructive passage, a, a passage I, I wish people took more seriously. Paul says this, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent with gentleness. See, Paul is saying we ought to relate to others with kindness and patience and, and gentleness. And if this is true of the, the leader in the church, how much more so must it not be true of each one of us? But, but notice how Paul carries on. He says, God may perhaps, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth and they came to, the, to their senses and escaped from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I realize God blesses both the ends and the means, the means that God uses to, to win people to himself. It isn't just the truth, but the truth spoken in love with gentleness and kindness and patience. I heard of a testimony a while ago of a, a sergeant in the U.S. Army who came to saving knowledge of the Lord. 
Uh, and this sergeant tells the story of how when he was employed in a particular location, he had a Christian under his charge. And he confessed quite openly that he purposely treated this Christian with cruelty. Uh, one, one evening, for example, while this man was praying, this sergeant with a bunch of others came behind him and kicked this Christian in the head with his dirty, muddy boots. And the Christian didn't fight back. He didn't complain. He didn't run away. No, he took it and carried on praying, despite this cruelty of this mob. The next morning, however, as the story goes, the sergeant found his shoes, those same shoes, washed and polished clean. And who did it? Well, you guessed it. It was the Christian. And the sergeant tells the testimony that it was that response that not only broke his heart, but won his heart for this man. It led to a lasting relationship and eventually led to him being saved. What's my point? True persuasion that is effective and blessed of God isn't just concerned with who we are and what we say. No, it's also concerned with how we relate. How we relate to others, how we show kindness and gentleness and respect. Now, Francis Schaeffer was, was perhaps one of the most, uh, the greatest Christian apologists and evangelists in the modern postmodern era. Uh, if you know anything about him, you'd know he was this very small, fragile man who could really get to the heart of an issue and often got to the heart of people. And in his little book, uh, The Death in the City, he, he makes this comment. He says, I've never found a man who has thought Orthodox Christianity as such ugly once he understands the titanic answers it gives. What men find ugly is what they see in Christians almost everywhere who hold to the Orthodox doctrine that men are lost but show no compassion. That is what's ugly. Isn't that a challenge for each of us? The question is, are we a people, and do people see us as ugly Christians because we show no compassion? Or are people seeing within us and our works and our deeds a, a beautiful Christianity, beautiful Christianity that wins the affections because it's marked with this kind of compassion? I think about this. Who was more compassionate than Christ and who was therefore more persuasive than Christ? See, not only was he holy in his character, not only was he, was he bold in his words, but he was compassionate with those around him. Contrary to what some people think, he didn't make these big signs and stand on corners shouting, turn or burn. No, he actually came close to sinners. He lived with them. He ate with them. He, he cared for them. He, he spoke to them with gentleness and, and love and respect. And he eventually in love died on the cross for sinners. Sinners like you and me, and if we want to be persuasive, if we want the world out there to see something different in us, we actually need to relate to them the way Christ related to us. 
with a gentle-hearted compassion, a gentle-hearted compassion that wins the affections. Uh, dear church, all in all, I, I trust you're seeing the point, getting the trend. True Christian persuasion is all about reflecting Christ. It's all about exalting Him and displaying Him in how we live, in how we speak, and how we treat others. You realize we are only as persuasive to the degree that we exalt Christ in our ethos, our logos, and our pathos. And therefore, the challenge for each one of us is this. What do people see? When they see our ministries, when they see us out and about in our world, the, the normal, mundane things of life, do they see Christ-like character? What, what do they hear? When we speak, do they hear a, a Christ-centered hope? Do they see us make much of our hope? And, and what do they experience when they engage you in the shops and at work, in the home perhaps? Do they experience Christ-like compassion? Do they see love that you've experienced firsthand by coming to know Christ? Oh, may we be formed more and more to Him. May we become more and more persuasive because we become more and more like Christ, more and more enthralled by Him. I've asked Carl and them to close with the hymn, Reign in Me, because that really is the, the key to becoming persuasive, to have Christ honored in our hearts as our Lord. And so may 2 Corinthians 5.11 be true of us. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, may we persuade others. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, how it challenges us and how it rebukes us, perhaps. But also how it encourages us to, to know that through your grace and through your empowerment, we can be effective for you. We can be witnesses that, that are like light and salt in this world. We thank you, dear Lord, that you see fit to to use weak, frail sinners like us for your greater glory and honor. And we pray, the prayer of my heart and the prayer of our hearts, I trust this evening, is that we'd become more like Christ, that he would indeed become more preeminent in our hearts so that he would be radiantly present and visible in all that we say, think, and do as we go about in our Jerusalem, as we seek to be witnesses here, but witnesses that display evidence that, that Christ is at work, that Christ is visible. And so help us, we pray. Do this for your glory, we ask. In Christ's name, amen.